Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And often on the Invention podcast, we explore inventions in the realm of getting food into your body. That's right. And this is the perfect month to discuss some food technology, right? Because it's uh, it's November, uh, where in uh, the United States, we celebrate Thanksgiving, which is, of course, is a time when you were thankful for your food, ideally, uh-huh. but also you uh, engage in some uh, gluttonous or semi-gluttonous behavior to celebrate said food. You're thankful for the elasticity of your stomach lining. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I should go deeper than that. I mean, ultimately, it is a. You see this in various cultures, right? It mm-hmm. is the. It is the the, the final uh, big feast before winter truly sets in and uh, threatens your survival. Yeah, the end of harvest feast day. Yeah, of course. Uh, but you know, so one of the overarching stories we often tell about the the correlation between uh, technology and and the timeline of human history has to do with nutrition, of course. Like to sustain a civilization in which most people don't spend the vast majority majority of their time on food procurement and production need a lot of specialized knowledge and a lot of technological leverage, which humans did acquire uh, in stages over the past 10,000 years or so, largely in the form of agricultural innovations, how to farm, how to get bigger crop yields, how to grow better food products, uh, etc. But when you think about the problem of how to feed the humans of the world, there's a whole second part of the equation that has nothing to do with the initial production of the food products we eat because there is this vast terrain of obstacles and challenges between the moment an egg is laid or the moment a potato is harvested or the moment a cow is milked and the moment that that final food product is eaten by a human. Uh, In fact, you might be shocked to discover how much perfectly good food is produced on planet Earth only to never be eaten by anyone. Oh, I'm... I'm bracing myself because this stuff always makes my skin crawl to hear. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's shocking, actually. So according to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, it's estimated that roughly 30 percent or a, a, about one third of the food produced by humans on Earth every year is wasted. Uh, by major food category, that's about 40 to 50 percent of root crops, fruits, and vegetables, about 20 percent of oil seeds, meat, and dairy products, about 35 percent of fish are lost or wasted annually. And that's, that's now. That's like with 21st century technology for preservation, cold storage, mechanized transport, and all that. You know, this, this lines up nicely with a recent uh, discussion we had on our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, about rats. Yeah, and uh, how rats thrive on disruption, and how they have they have uh, done amazingly well living in the shadow of human civilization, and this. This is one of the reasons. Oh, exactly. Uh, Now, that waste occurs at all kinds of stages throughout the chain of of supplying food. In more developed countries, a lot of times there is less waste. A lot of the waste takes place at the consumer side, including like the leftovers on your plate that you scrape off into the trash, waste produced during the food preparation process in the kitchen, like peeling off totally edible bits of food, cutting off crusts, etc. And then also just the idea like less than perfect produce that sits unbought at the market because of aesthetic defects. 
Yeah. Um, speaking of, I, if I remember correctly, there's like an, a box service you can get now where it's just the ugly vegetables. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, like someone said, hey, we're throwing all these ugly vegetables away. We should be selling these to hipsters <laughs> for an inflated price. No, that's a great idea. I, I it's think sa- it's great too. Yeah. yeah. Safe to eat. Doesn't look good. Yeah. Sure. Bring it on. I, I prefer funny looking carrots myself. Yeah. The more they look like, like pants, mm. the better. I, I like it too. Uh, now, in the developing world, uh, more food loss occurs actually earlier in the supply chain, mostly due to a lack of infrastructure for storing and transporting food products in a way that preserves their quality. So, like, a huge part of this food loss is due to spoilage, food going bad. And much of the spoilage occurs early in the supply chain because food rots in containers while it's waiting to be shipped to market or spoils in the sun on the back of an unrefrigerated truck on the way to a storage facility. Um, food spoilage is, of course, a double problem because on on one end, you might say the more minor end, of course, it is, is a huge problem worldwide. Uh, it wastes valuable food resources that could, if the distribution channels were working efficiently, get to the people who need them, especially to hungry people. But on the other end, of course, uh, if food spoiled by microorganisms is, eat, uh, is eaten, it can potentially make you sick or kill you. And these are not new problems. So today we're going to be talking about an invention that played a major role in the history of this food supply chain and in preventing some of this food waste along the distribution chain from you know food production to eating the food. And that invention is canning, the process of preserving foods by heating them in a hermetically sealed container. I have to say, I always enjoy discussing hermetically sealed anything because it, it always brings to mind like this phantom of uh, of, of like, a, an, uh, like alchemy and an actual uh-huh. hermit. Oh, I love uh, it. Yeah. 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 Because, of course, hermet- hermetically sealed in this context means airtight sealed. Yeah. Uh, air cannot penetrate. But, of course, it has the other connotation of like hermetic philosophy, hermetic <laughs> religion. All right. Well, before we get to the canning, though, we're going to do what we normally do. We're going to talk about what came before. What came before this technology, this food technology of canning? And there was a lot that came before. Uh, if, if, you, uh, if you wanted to preserve food in the ancient world, uh, you had to turn to four different sources, sort of four different powers. Uh, uh, this according to Brian M. Fagan, author of the excellent uh, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. And he classifies them as snow, ice, smoke, and wind. Mm. So uh, let's start with the like the the, the snow and the ice uh, because that's probably the you know one of the ones we have some 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 really robust evidence for. Ice age hunters in what is now Ukraine used permafrost storage some fourteen thousand years ago. Uh, we have evidence of this. They would dig deep pits in the frozen tundra and they would store mammoth flesh and other foods in there. Okay, uh, so this would have been you said during the ice age. So this is when like the uh, the like the polar regions had sort of extended down yeah. closer to the equator and you had ice sheets and permafrost lower at lower latitudes. Yeah. So you had a lot of uh, – basically you had a lot of ice on hand. You had a lot of snow on hand. You had a lot of uh, – you had a cold environment mm-hmm. that was readily available in which to hide away your excess mammoth flesh for later. But that's not the only uh, environment in which we saw this 
strategy uh, excel. In modern-day Syria, for example, ice house technology goes back to at least uh, 1700 BCE, and it was also well-established in China by the 7th century BCE. Now, an ice house is a building designed for storing ice and, uh, and then storing things that need to be cooled by that ice. And we've touched on this a bit in, in past episodes, specifically our, uh, our episode on air conditioning. You know, how do you how do you store ice and keep it cool? Yeah, and I think there were some allegations that, say, for example, in ancient Persia, you could have cellars that were cooled by wind catchers and canots yeah. uh, that would, would stay very cold and you could store, you know, cold uh, like foods or ice or whatever in them. Yeah, but in, in other cases, you just had access to, say, mountain ice. Uh, even we saw this in uh, the, the Aztec world. The Aztecs would bring ice down uh, from the mountains. It would be carried down by runners. And then it would be sold to uh, you know members of the of the royal houses uh, uh, there in the market. This uh, allegedly happened in the ancient Roman world as well, right? Yeah, and the the Chinese utilized it as well. the the uh, the, the different ice houses that the Chinese used, you know, they often had uh, you know ornate doors. They had a draining system for when the ice is melting, mm-hmm. and it would be used as a place to store ice or even a royal body uh, after mm-hmm. the the individual had uh, passed away. And by the way, all of this is one of the reasons why the history of ice cream goes back, uh, you know, far further in time than I think a lot of us might think. Uh, the Chinese, for instance, are thought to have produced the earliest example of a sweet ice milk concoction as early as the 7th century BCE. When are we going to do the full episode on ice cream? Well, we thought we were going to have maybe a sponsor for a little bit. We're like, bring us the ice cream sponsor. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Klondike Bar, you're out there. Hit us up. Yeah. We'll do an ice cream episode tomorrow uh, if, if you would like. So uh, that's ice and snow, but let's get to that smoke and that wind. Uh, meat, uh, the drying of meat has also long been practiced, uh, either drying meat in the sun or drying it with smoke and, uh, and, and ultimately with, uh, with wind. Uh, and smoke certainly goes back, uh, smoke, smoke uh, curing goes back at least to the late Ice Age. Salting would come in later, becoming an established technology by the time of the Romans. Mm-hmm. And we touched on that a little bit in our recent episode on ketchup. Sure. But these technologies alone only get you so far. What you need is some sort of magical container, right? Something that preserves food within it without having to freeze it or dry it out to reduce it, to alter it, you know, in some way, shape or form. And, and, and ideally do so in a way that like, truly lasts because a lot of these uh, food preservation techniques we're discussing here, either they require – ice to be continually added to the mm-hmm. ice house or even you know a salt cured meat is only going to last so long that and i mean another concern is just the the pleasure people take in eating i mean right. to thoroughly salt meat in order to preserve it that will have some good preservative properties not 100% but you know mostly works uh, but it changes the it changes the nature of the meat. I mean, yeah. it makes it very salty and dried out. It's not like eating fresh meat. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that we often discuss cooking itself as a partial digestion, like a pre-digestion of the meat to make it easier for our digestive systems, you might look at preservation of these various foods as additional digestion mm-hmm. that in some cases can reduce some of the beneficial aspects either uh, you know, from a you know, vitamin a nutritional standpoint or from just a, the experience of eating mm-hmm. uh, standpoint. Uh, it further digests the food and, and at the end of that, you might, uh, you know, might grow tired of uh, your hardtack or whatever. 
whatever. I feel like one of the most standard bits of like a slice of military life you get when you look back over the centuries, like what the soldiers are talking about and stuff. It's complaining about the food. Yeah. <laughs> That's like so often what's going on. Even as the technology advances because yeah. certainly, um, you know, a lot of jokes are often made about spam, right? Mm-hmm. Spam is a canned meat. That is ultimately, you know, one of the hallmarks of the uh, the, the age of canning, which mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to in a bit. But uh, we, you know, we've touched on some of the ideas, you know, just about why one preserves food. Of course, the big one is we have all this food now, uh, but we can only eat so much. Some of it's going to spoil. How do we save that? Yeah, part of it is just uh, sort of top level flexibility within the supply chain. Right. Like if you can preserve the food, that gives you more time to figure out where you're going to send it, who you're going to sell it to and all that kind of stuff. If, you know, you're talking about a lot of fresh foods, that question is always an emergency. You need to have the final destination figured out for the food immediately. Yeah, but even on like a household uh, level, right? It's like we have, uh, we just harvested. We have plenty of food now. We can have a big feast, Mm -hmm. but it's about to be winter and we need to continue to eat through the winter. So we need a food preservation system so that we can have that food to to feast upon. Uh, well, not to feast upon, but just to live upon uh, heading into the new year. Right. So there's like supply chain flexibility. There's getting through the, the winter months. Another big one is like uh, we already hinted at this, like armies and expeditions. Exactly. If yeah. you're like on the move. Yeah. If you're sending your army to conquer an adjacent kingdom or sending ships to discover new lands. Um, you know, ultimately, we can look at those two things and say they're basically the same. <laughs> There's not really a lot of difference in the way those two efforts shake out. Uh, but anyway, it pays to have uh, improved food storage technologies on your side if you were engaging in any of those long-distance, uh, sometimes long-distance travel scenarios. Now, just to provide a better idea of what was possible pre-canning and what the sort of the pre-canning world was like, uh, I wanted to consider life aboard a 17th or 18th century uh, sailing ship. Uh, I was looking into some of this. We know we all have sort of an idea in our mind, right, of sailors going down. They're pulling up, uh, you know, a bucket of provisions. They're definitely eating hardtack. Uh Hopefully they have some limes or lemons to stave off scurvy. Uh, but I was looking at um, an excellent website called Savoring the Past, and they uh, they had uh, they managed to, to pull up uh, the uh, list of provisions aboard a couple of different uh, ships, and one of them is a British sloop uh, called uh, um, Alert from uh, 1777, and it was a, a sloop of 60 men, and it contained uh, the following: beef, 462 pieces in six barrels, uh, pork. 777 pieces in five barrels, then 12 barrels of beer, uh, 56 hogsheads and 25 casks of 18 gallons each of water. And then you had, uh, you know, something like 6,000 pounds of bread. You had 420 pounds of butter, 20 bushels of oatmeal, 16 bushels of peas, 1,300 pounds of flour, 82 uh, pounds of suet. 200 pounds of raisins, four half hogsheads of rum. They don't have enough rum. (laughs) I know. And one hogshead of vinegar. Uh, so that meat that we discussed up top, the the beef, the pork, that's definitely salted meat, yeah. which would not have had a tremendous shelf life either. Uh, I was reading a, a cool source on this. Uh, there's a, an Atlas Obscura article titled The Grim Food Served on the 17th Century Sea Voyages Wasn't All Bad. And it's a, about a Texas A&M University project that recreated some of these foods using mm-hmm. the pre-canning food preservation techniques, you know, that would give you, say, a barrel of salted uh, beef. Oh, this 
this reminds me of when we talked about the uh, the life aboard the nuclear submarines that would spend a lot of time. Oh, yeah. So, like, early on, the food's really good, but things get weirder as time goes on. Yeah, and uh, but, but still you've got to eat, and so you're eating the weird salted meat. Uh, they pointed out, quote, after two months, the salted beef smelled gnarly and didn't look fresh, but it wasn't quite rotten either. So, like, that's kind of – I think that's a good – way of summing up where you are with even like the height of pre-canning preserved foods is that it might not be killing you. It might not be actually rotten, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not fresh. (laughs) And it's also, again, it is not going to last for an extended period of time. And these were often extended voyages. Um, Hardtack, they mentioned, though, which is that dried uh, uh, bread-type substance, essentially like hardened bread rock. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said that that lasted pretty well, though, throughout the length of a voyage. So if nothing else, you could count on your hardtack as long as you had enough of it. Delicious. I guess you dip it in the vinegar. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's what the hogshead of vinegar is for. (laughs) Mmm, hardtack with suet and vinegar. Well, I mean, part of this, too, is that, of course, then to carry out these voyages, you know, and part of this is just you don't you – know, it has, comes down to like how much room you have to carry, uh, you know, additional provisions. You know, you're going to have to acquire new food as you go. Right. And uh, that becomes one of the difficulties of traveling. It's one of the difficulties of traveling as a ship uh, going from port A to port B. It also is one of the problems of a of an army, tra- yeah. you know, transporting itself across a continent. Uh, some of the – one of the, the friendlier phrases is that armies forage, right? You know, yeah. they can't take all the food they need with them. Yeah. But a lot of times this meant, well, I mean, especially more in the past, it would mean like seizing local farms, taking their crops and their livestock and stuff and saying, you know, we need to appropriate this. All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more on the invention of canning. All right. We're back. So I think maybe a good way to do this is to start with what we know now about canning and then go back to before the invention. Uh, so why does canned food resist spoilage? Obviously, there are multiple causes of spoilage. We know that like, you know, light, exposure to light can affect foods. Exposure right. to oxidization can affect foods. And th- these are different than what we're focusing on. We're focusing on the mer- microbial variety of spoilage. Um, it, it's because spoilage is caused by microorganisms like bacteria, yeasts, and molds. Now, of course, we know that microorganisms like this are – ubiquitous on planet Earth. They're everywhere. Even if you generally keep things clean in your kitchen, there are some small numbers of microorganisms in and on your food and all over the environment in which that food is handled, prepared, and stored. And over time, those microorganisms that get on your food begin to feed and multiply there, releasing potentially toxic waste products in the process. Uh, This is one thing that's important to remember is that uh, like cooking food, I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, even if food's a little bit old, I can cook it and that'll kill all the uh, mm-hmm. microbes on it and then I'll be safe. But microbes also release waste products that can be harmful to you that are not destroyed by the cooking process. But anyway, uh, to keep your food from spoiling, you have to prevent the growth of microbes like fungal molds and bacteria. But since, again, these microbes are nearly everywhere in our environment, what can you do? I think canning is a very simple, elegant solution to that. And the solution is you seal the food in an airtight container so that nothing can get in or out. And then you kill any living thing that's already inside the container by heating the container to a temperature that nothing relevant can survive. 
survive. For example, the boiling point of water, 100 degrees C or 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and uh, the modern canning process often gets things even hotter than that by the use of pressure kettles. Yeah. Uh, and you hold it at that temperature for a specified length of time so you can be sure the temperature is permeated through the whole thing and it has killed anything that's in there. When done properly, canning can preserve food for an extremely long time. In fact, though we are not recommending you eat old canned food, <laughs> as long as the can is not breached in any way, properly canned goods should resist spoilage basically indefinitely. Like if, if a can of corn was heated correctly and the airtight seal has never been broken, it should in theory still be safe to eat decades later, though the taste and the texture of the food inside can, can and almost certainly will deteriorate with time. Just one real-world example of this, uh, I, I want to read from an article in the Sioux City Journal by Terry Turner from August of 2018. Turner is describing the 19th century wreck of a steamboat called the Bertrand. The Bertrand sank in the Missouri River after hitting a submerged log on April 1st, 1865, uh, and the boat sank within 10 to 15 minutes of the impact, meaning there was no time to offload its cargo, which included many canned goods. And Turner writes, quote, Canned goods removed from the shipwreck were tested in 1974 by the National Food Processors Association. The cans contained such things as brandied peaches, oysters, plum tomatoes, honey, and mixed vegetables. The tests determined that although the appearance, smell, and vitamin content of the food had deteriorated, it was all still safe to eat. Oh, man. There's nothing like a hundred-year-old can of uh, oysters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that does sound pretty nasty, even <laughs> if it was ruled safe. Now, again, we are not advising you to eat 100-year-old canned food uh, because there could be risks of, for example, the airtight seal on the can being breached in ways that aren't obvious to you. Uh, the most common warning signs that the can has been breached in some way are leaking, rust, or especially bulging cans. Oh, yeah, that botulism bulge. Do yeah. not even go near that. Uh, dents could also be a sign of worry, but then again, slightly dense. Scented cans are usually safe. Um, uh, there's no there's no single rule that you can always look at a can and know for sure. But generally, if most food hasn't been breached, the airtight seal hasn't been broken, and it was it was heated properly in the first place, it's good stuff. I was even reading another article about a, a, a team that was uh, exploring somewhere in the Arctic and they came across like decades-old cans that had been left there by a previous expedition and mm -hmm. found that they were still safe to eat. Oh, wow. Um, so when considered as an invention, canning, of course, is more of a process than a material product. It's not – all that much that's really particular about the design of the can, though those there were can design innovations that came along in the history of canning. I think the main things to consider here are that canning involves knowledge of what types of containers are appropriate, uh, the fact that they must be sealed airtight and how to seal them, the fact that they must be heated, and knowledge of what temperature they must be heated to and the time that they must be kept at that temperature. I should also throw in that, you know, when you hear talk about canning and, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I've heard of talk about canning my whole life. And I, I have to admit that for a long time I just assumed we call it canning because you put things in cans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's not where the word, word canning comes from. Really? It comes from the Greek uh, canastron, which is – and the Latin uh, canistra. Uh, it's a wicker basket used for holding bread, fruit, and flowers. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. 
Try canning in a wicker basket, though, and I think you'll encounter problems. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't doesn't work all that well. Uh, Now, before we get to the most commonly cited inventor of canning, I think we should mention that there was some work preceding the invention of canning that sort of led up to it, especially in the early – so the invention was generally considered to be in the early 1800s. But one example of work leading up to canning is the – are the experiments of the Italian physiologist Lazzaro Spallanzani. Ah. Fantastic multisyllabic name, Spallanzani. Uh, he lived 1729 to 1799. And Spallanzani was opposed to some of the spontaneous generation theories that were popular in his time. Spontaneous generation, of course, uh, concerned various ideas about ways that life forms would sort of arise from vital atoms that were there in the soil or in the water. Uh, it was it was against the idea that there were life forms all over the place that were microscopic and would multiply. Uh, and of course, uh, it, and Spallanzani was supporting the theories of the early microscopist Antony van Leeuwenhoek. Uh, and th- these ideas were that the tiny cells seen floating around in pond water were in fact life forms, which gave rise to macroscopic effects through their multiplication. And uh, in a group of experiments in the 18th century, Spallanzani showed you could fill up a glass vial with gravy and if it was sealed airtight and then boiled, for some reason afterwards, it did not show any signs of spoilage. Thus, he concluded from the great gravy experiments that under normal non-sealed conditions, microbial life forms must somehow enter the gravy through the air and cause the spoilage that we recognize in most food that sits around for a while. Uh, so he, he basically had like a miasma theory of how the the gravy shooter was going to be corrupted. Well, no, I mean, I think he – I don't know to what degree it overlapped with miasma because miasma theory was absolutely still in, in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. Like we wouldn't get to the work of say John Snow and and uh, and Louis Pasteur until later in the 1800s, right. you know, cementing the idea that like there are these microorganisms out there. They are the cause of infectious diseases. Uh, so, but, but Spallanzani I think was sort of on the right track. Uh, and I, I do think he attributed it to life forms, tiny microscopic life forms and not necessarily, say, the fumes coming off of rotting vegetation right, right. as many miasma theorists did. But he realized that the, the these organisms were going to reach the gravy shooter via the air. Right. If you couldn't – if you didn't seal it off and sterilize it with heat, then they would eventually get in there and spoil it. Mm. But he did not invent anything cooking-wise or, or food storage-wise from this insight. But that brings us to one Nicholas Appert. That's right. Nicholas Appert, who lived 1749 through 1841. He was uh, – accounts apparently differ whether he was the son of a, a woolcomber or a hotel keeper. I mean, it's possible that you know, his, his father was both. Uh, but he started work early on in life as an apprentice cook. So he he was a chef, he was a distiller, he was a confectioner, but through all this time he experimented with the preservation of food, and uh, and he especially got interested in it uh, after the French Directory offered a prize uh, in 1795 to anyone who could develop an uh, an improved method of food preservation. And so he set to work on the problem for something like 14 years. And the, the French directory issue, I think, was mainly military-focused, right? It right. was the idea of how can we get 
well-preserved foods that still taste good and don't go bad and make people sick for the Navy. Right. Though also, I mean, this was the period of the revolution and the Revolutionary Wars. There was there were food shortages as well. So there was, you know, the, the focus was also domestic. Yeah. Uh, you know, just you know, whatever we can do to preserve food better to uh, to survive these uh, you know these crunches. Yeah, and then also we we mentioned the similarity between military needs and like uh, the expeditions that are going on at the time. Oh, yeah. Like many early stories about the successes of canned food mention it being used on, for example, polar explorations in the early 1800s. Sir John Ross, the Arctic explorer, took uh, canned food with him on his expedition to the Arctic. Uh, Otto van Kutzebue also did the same while searching for the Northwest Passage. So what Appert did is he developed a method using glass containers, wire-reinforced uh, wire corks, sealing wax, and a bath of boiling water. And he tested this over the years on a number of different types of foods, including soups, in what was, you know, essentially a hermetically sealed bottle. He was then able to claim an 1810 prize of 12,000 francs with this method. And uh, this was all published in The Art of Preserving All Kinds of Animal and Vegetable Substances for Several Years. <laughs> nice, for several years. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because so the, the, this guy who is credited with inventing canning here was not putting things in the metal cans we think of today. He was more like uh, sealing and sterilizing soup in wine bottles, like glass bottles. Right. Like some of the ones you see uh, pictured uh, in, in the history books, uh, they essentially look like dark, old-timey milk glasses, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with the, uh, the wide uh, brim. And, uh, yeah, fill that with soup, uh, seal it up, uh, use this method, and then it would be good to go. Uh, these were the four steps that he outlined in uh, the art of, of preserving all kinds of animal and vegetable substances for several years. Uh, and it's basically what we've been talking about. Step one, to place in the bottles or glass jars the substances to be preserved. Step two, to cork these different vessels with the greatest care because success chiefly depends on the closing. Okay. Step three, to submit these substances thus enclosed to the action of boiling water in a water bath for a more or less time according to their nature and in the manner that I shall indicate for each kind of food. And then step four, to remove the bottles from the water bath at the time prescribed. So he got, the, he got this prize money and he put it to use. He established the first commercial cannery uh, with this money in 1812. And the house of a pair operated until 1933. And he canned all manner of foods, uh, including at one point a whole sheep uh, ah! for purely promotional purposes. <laughs> a whole sheep? I know. I was looking for like at least an illustration of this, but I couldn't find anything. Oh. Uh, he also applied himself uh, to other inventions, including he uh, perfection of the autoclave, which is a, 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 a device that uses uh, you know boiling conditions to sterilize instruments. Uh -huh. The bouillon tablet. Oh, uh, bouillon tablet. Yeah, like for making soups. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like, uh, oh, I always wondered how they made the earliest ones of those. What do you just boil down broth until you got a solid? Yeah, basically. I mean, we have to remember that like broth is essentially what you have like a turkey carcass. Uh -huh. After you've gotten the meat off of it, you put the carcass. What's left of it in the pot. You just boil it until you have the stock, and then the mm -hmm. stock can be utilized. But then if you reduce the stock down to its, like, bare, uh, you, know, com you know, completely dried essentials, you have that tablet. Uh -huh. uh, and that's what he came up with. Nice. Um, and then he, uh, he also worked on a non-acid gelatin extraction method, which is, you know, uh, maybe less exciting. Now, I know what you're thinking, uh, especially if you've listened to past episodes. Okay, sure, the French celebrate a pair. 
But what, what, what he did wasn't that revolutionary, right? Surely other individuals and, and other nations make claims on canning technology. Yeah, this is very often the case. Even when there's usually an identified inventor of a technology, they weren't like – it didn't come out of the blue usually. Right. Yeah, and you know, even though it wasn't the – you know, the sort of hyper-connected world we have today, you still had people communicating with each other throughout mm -hmm. a country and then cross-country. So uh, I was reading a piece on this uh, from J.C. Graham. This was published in 1981 in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine titled The French Connection in the Early History of Canning. <laughs> um, I, I like that he put the movie reference in there. But uh -huh. he writes that, yes, uh, you know, based on what we know, it suggests that the theory was widely known uh, before the time of a pair. However, he points out that a pair went above and beyond uh, by testing different foods to figure out how long he needed to heat them. Even though he didn't understand the reason for airtight containers, he'd figured out through trial and error and experimentation that it was essential. So even if you know, there were other people who were on to something. They realized, oh, there's, there's something to this boiling, sealing and boiling of the container. A pair really did the legwork, uh -huh. you know, spent, uh, again, allegedly 14 years uh, figuring it out and devising his own recipes for how long things needed to be, uh, you know, exposed to the heat and then, and then, you know, how exactly to go about it. Like he took more or less a scientific approach to it. But what? But it was very different than like what we saw with uh, Spallanzani, right? Spallanzani mm -hmm. got some correct approximation of the underlying reasoning, right? But uh, but a pair did not. A pair just figured out what worked, right? And again, he didn't really understand why it worked. Yeah, uh, you know, the theory of uh, spontaneous generation still still held sway at that time, and uh, Pasteur's revelations about the role of microbes in decomposition would come some fifty years later. But Graham considered. Uh, that, that his method was keeping decay at bay, mm -hmm. and and that was enough. And he yeah. had the it's like he had the recipe for it. He had the instructions, and uh, time after time, he he was able to prove that it worked. So a pair didn't necessarily have the insight about microbial life, but he knew that like you can't let air get in right after you've heated it up. Yeah, he kind of I mean essentially had kind of like the workhorse like kitchen knowledge of of how this was going to work. Like he didn't have to explain. To, he didn't need to know how the microbes worked. You know, he he knew that if you if you followed these steps, then yes, you could you could store away a soup in a bottle and it would remain uncorrupted for a, a, a lengthy period of time. Now I'm sure once we had a more uh, fully realized and accurate theory of microbial decomposition and food spoilage, we could pair that with our like industrial and technical knowledge to to get better results overall. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, as the as, as canning and food preservation uh, in general you know, progresses, it greatly benefits from that new information. Right. Mo uh, a big point there, of course, being Louis Pasteur, yeah. as we mentioned, yeah, and the, the pasteurization of, uh, of milk. All right, I think we need to do a quick break, and when we come back, we can talk a little bit about the early years of canning and some of the legacy. All right, we're back. So uh, a number of you might be wondering, all right, we, we're talking about canning, and we're talking about bottles full of soup and whole sheep and so forth, but we're not talking about tin cans. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to formulate some kind of like Scottish accent joke about a <laughs> ship in a bottle, a ship in a bottle. Uh, never mind. I, I think it needs some work, but we can get there. We okay. can get there with that joke. Uh, okay. So basically, yeah, a pair's book comes out and it's it's a big hit. It's such a big hit that uh, Englishman uh, Peter Durand uh, buys a copy of it. 
uh, and brings it to England in 1810 and then seeks and obtains a patent on, the, on an exact copy of a pair's method. He obtains the, like the English patent for the method. Uh, and he mentions in the application that he obtained the idea from a friend traveling abroad. So he's not, he's not too cagey about the fact that he basically just like, took the idea and he's just going to uh, patent it for use mm-hmm. uh, in England. Uh, but as J.C. Graham points out, uh, he covered his, his grounds in the patent to include, quote, bottles or other vessels of glass pottery, tin or other metals or fit materials. So basically, you know, he he had an eye uh, on the, the financial possibilities here. Like mm-hmm. he was kind of a, a patent troll, I guess you would say. <laughs> you know, he was like, oh, this, look, this is working great in France. I'm going to get it in England and I'm also going to add in some additional language to ensure that we have, you know, all the various uh, uh, material iterations of this covered. But those material changes would actually come through in, in the big early successful models of cans, which were the tin-coated iron can, which replaced a pair of sealed gl- glass jars for industrial production. Exactly. Now, so, so I guess you could say that Duran saw the future. Like he at least knew that, like these are some of the materials that could be the future of canning. Uh-huh. I'm going to include them in the patent. But then he was himself not an inventor. He was a merchant. So after receiving the patent, he promptly sold it off for a £1,000. And the buyers were Brian, Donkin, and John Hall. And they set up a commercial cannery in 1813, and it took off. And uh, meanwhile, Duran set about obtaining his patent in America so he could continue <laughs> this uh, this process. Uh, in his book Connections, James Burke at this point talks about uh, a, a, an influential moment in the early days of canning when some canned meats were served to the royal family in England. Oh, yes. I think at a – Maybe at a feast at the Duke of York was hosting or something. And, and apparently the royals greatly enjoyed the canned meats that were served to them. And this was like a big thumbs up for the new technology. Well, you have to you have to think about it. I mean, we've been eating out of cans our whole life. So there's not really much novelty to it for the most part. But uh, yeah, imagine encountering a can of food for the first time. Here's this sealed object. And uh, when it is opened up, there is a, a rich soup inside. Uh, there's a there's a prepared meal inside yeah. this object. I mean, it's a, it's one of those things that makes me wonder. Generally, was food just really bad in the past? <laughs> I don't know. But maybe maybe these early canned foods were just really good. There is such a thing as good canned food. I think mm-hmm. we often associate canned food with being bad, but it doesn't have to be. Right. I mean, because the thing is, like canned food. Processed food does not begin with canning, but but canning does bring about a revolution in processed food. Yeah, and it, you and and becomes like a hallmark of processed food. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but that being said, there are varying degrees of, of of quality to be had there, and there there is such thing as a good canned soup. I would presume that if they were serving it to the royal family, they would have they would have picked a good one. They would have marked a <laughs> right. good one. It's like this is the one. Uh, this is the can that needs to be put in front of the queen. Uh, It was, in fact, Campbell's split pea and ham. (laughs) But yeah, one thing you mentioned is that uh, Duran was looking to obtain a patent in America. And of course, America – in America, shortly after this, canning became huge business. Oh, yeah. And generally everywhere, like I mean, anywhere you are producing food, there's a you know, high probability that you're also going to have a cannery because you need to uh, to to actually uh, you know ship the the product out. But uh, you look back at uh, particularly with America, you look back at uh, at cookbooks from say around 1900, and you have books like How to Make Good Things to Eat, for, <laughs> uh, and and it's mostly recipes for how to utilize canned goods. Yeah. 
but then on the other hand, canning wasn't just a way of obtaining commercial foods. It wasn't just a way of, of obtaining foods that came from over there. No, it was also a, a breakthrough in, in household food preservation. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, a way to preserve your own food, but then also to engage in like minor food trading and selling in your own community. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider canned fruit preserves and jellies, household methods of preparation from 1904 by Maria uh, Parloa. Uh, that was just a, another cookbook that I ran across, and it's all about ways to can, ways to preserve food in your house. Uh, and I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I I grew up around canning. Like canning was always occurring, either with my grandparents or my aunts or my my mom would can stuff. And uh, yeah, it was just it was part of the tradition of life. Uh, I, I wish I'd been around it more. I mean, I love those kind of traditions. No, we we didn't do it a lot in my household. Uh, but I, I want to come back to to home canning because I think uh, that's an interesting development in this process. Because what what you see early on is like canning begins as this very centralized activity, mm-hmm. which is for like the needs of the state, right? right? You know, you got the state prize paying out for it. But of course, as, gradually over time, it becomes like industrial products for the consumer and then finally democratized to something you can do in your own kitchen. Which is only fair because the the, the need for the preservation of food and the various uh, methods to preserve it, like that was a pre-state um, initiative in, in in human civilization. Oh, of course. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, I mentioned James Burke writing about mm-hmm. canning and connections. There's a section where he talks about several problems encountered by the earliest consumer canned goods. Uh, so first of all, you had difficulty of production. That like he talks about the first uh, canned goods were, were made with these production methods that would allow each cannery worker to produce only about ten cans of food per day. Oh wow. Uh, so, so yeah, and one thing that flowed from that is that there were high costs. Uh, so, like he says, the first canned foods that reached shops in England around 1830 or so included products like tomatoes, sardines, and peas. And high price here was a significant barrier to adoption. Uh, Burke cites early prices in the 1830s when a can of soup sold for over seven and a half pence, and I'll contextualize these prices in a second, uh, a can of corned beef for eight and a half pence, a can of salmon for 11 and a half pence, and for comparison, Burke says that at the same time, an English family could rent a house for about 12 and a half pence a week. Oh, wow. So a can of corned beef is like two-thirds of a week's rent. Uh, on the other hand, when we think about cans, you're probably picturing the modern standard like 15-ounce can, the kind that fits easily in one hand. I'm not positive, but I think these prices – Burke is citing or referring to larger cans, which were very common early on, more like the size of a paint can. Oh, wow. So, you know, paint can worth of corned beef, is that worth two-thirds of a week's rent? I don't know. It still sounds pretty steep. Well, you know, you can spice it up a little bit, you know. Don't have to just eat straight corned beef for every meal. (laughs) But, yeah, it also gets down to the fact that, like, this would have been more of a – this was more of a specialized product early on. It Mm -hmm. had to either be for, like, your your voyage uh, to the edge of – uh, the threshold of human civilization, uh-huh. or it was something that you would eat uh, because you were, you know, it was a novelty and you could afford it. Right. Oh, one more funny fact is that uh, Burke mentions early cans had to be opened with tools like a hammer and chisel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then also you had. 
factors early on that still affect certain products today. I mean, some foods work way better canned than others, right? Uh, most people are totally cool with canned beans, but there are a lot of people who don't love canned peas. Like, what's the difference there? Well, these sealed containers have to be boiled in order to be sterilized, mm-hmm. right? And some foods just deal better with ex- extreme exposure to prolonged heat in a sealed container than others do. And then, uh, I mean, it's also worth thinking about the fact that some canned foods were themselves already – had already experienced preservation by another method, you know, if you're dealing yeah. with something that is pickled, for instance. Sure, totally. Uh, now, of course, uh, today canning – you know, there's a, there were a lot of steps in between. But today canning is done at massive scale by automated machinery rather than the early method of like hand soldering the can together. Uh, and it's often uh, – I think I mentioned this earlier – superheated by the use of high-pressure steam kettles to take the contents actually past the normal pressure boiling point of water up to around 240 degrees Fahrenheit or 116 degrees Celsius. So th- that's how you get a lot of these modern foods that are – kind of canned to death. Yeah. But then at the end of the, the day, like, right, there's still, it's still canned food. It is yeah. still food that is, it is preserved. It is, it is not corrupted. And, yeah. And you can eat it. It might not be great, but maybe it's better than, uh, than, uh, than what mangy uh, uh, salted pork from a barrel. Right. Now, now to come back to, to home canning, uh, th- this was interesting. I, like I say, I grew up around canning, but I just had, I just had this kind of mason jar world of canning in my head. And I kind of, uh, uh, in a, you know, just naively thought that this is what everybody did, like that mm-hmm. everybody had the mason jar. The mason jar is the standard, and that's why we put flowers in them uh, at uh, at country weddings, and uh, <laughs> and why we we drink orange juice out of them in the morning. But uh, but no, you know, there were a number of inventions and innovations aimed at streamlining the home canning game. Uh, and uh, and so yes, the the mason jar was 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 big, especially in the United States. But there were some other country specific innovations that were uh, that are also worth mentioning, such as Germany's uh, Weck jar, which was created by the J Weck Company in 1895, and it's a molded glass jar with a simple lock, sometimes described as like a foolproof lock, uh, rubber gasket and lid uh, just to aid in the canning process. And it, it has a pretty slick looking kind of minimalist design to it. I, I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. We should also mention um, uh, there's a Fowler's uh, Vacola, which was an Australian canning system. Uh, perhaps some of our Australian listeners can chime in on that if they have memories of that. Uh, and then there's the uh, the Kilner jar, which was used uh, in uh, in England. And uh, I think this one had more of a screwing mechanism on top. So, yeah, basically it comes down to the fact that, yes, there's the basic plan for how to can something. But especially in you know, if you're dealing with – if you're either dealing with like a highly specific industrial process or you're dealing with a home process, you're going to have different approaches on how to best carry that off, how to how to form that seal, how to how to carry this all uh, out safely, because uh, you know ultimately you're dealing with boiling water, and and if you're and if you're throwing a pressure cooker into the scenario, you know that also adds a a certain element of danger to the scenario. Yeah, and then I mean without getting to the fact that if you do it wrong. Uh, you're not going to properly preserve your food. You're going to potentially bottle, um, you know, poison, mm-hmm. uh, which is not what uh, you intended, and not why you set off on this adventure of canning to begin with. Or at the very least, even if you don't poison yourself, you could end up wasting. Yeah, yeah. and and that is, yeah, that's the whole purpose of this endeavor is not to waste food to to take uh, what is food now and have it be food uh, three, four months from now, a year from now, et cetera. Yeah. You know, Robert, I think this has convinced me. I've never – I do a lot of cooking at home, but I've never done canning at home. I think I'm going to give it a try. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've never I've never attempted canning myself either, I don't think. Uh, 
The most we've done are like fridge pickles, which is you know not canning. Oh, I do fridge pickles. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But that's the closest I've come because it's at least in a mason jar. Uh-huh. Uh So yeah, I, I would uh, I would also love to hear from anyone who currently uh, engages in canning. Uh, what's your What's it like? How do you How do you relate to the canning process? Uh, likewise, did you grow up uh, you know with, with in any of these various canning traditions, uh, any of these various models of uh, of, of, of of home canning, or uh, do you have specific memories of uh, good or bad about various canned foods. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And likewise, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you if you would like uh, to, to hear the uh, exploration here continue in any, uh, in any you know, direction that we've touched on in this episode. Because certainly the history of food technology is, is vast and there's so many wonderful little avenues to, to follow or to go in more depth upon. Next episode, let's do Jello. <laughs> no, we don't have to do that. Um, you know, but it's a, but no, specifically, we could do a whole episode on jello. We could do a whole episode on just canned sardines themselves, uh-huh. you know, like you know, any one of these, uh, these examples, uh, you know, are, are generally, there's a lot more history and a lot more science to it than we, we tend to think. All right. So, uh, again, stick with us throughout November. We're going to have some more food related episodes of invention coming at you. And, ooh, I, I don't, I, I can't even imagine what uh, December is going to bring. Uh, <laughs> but you can uh, follow us and find out. Make sure you have, uh, wherever you get your podcast, go to invention. Make sure you have subscribed. And if you want to help the show out, a, a great thing you can do is uh, leave a nice review, leave some stars, leave a nice comment. Uh, you know, that, that helps feed uh, the, the demons of the algorithm and so forth. Uh, likewise, remember. Remember our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, you can find that wherever you get your podcast. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Invention is also at inventionpod.com. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.